Welcome to Inside the Vatican with American Media. Each week, veteran Vatican reporter Gerard O'Connell and I will take you behind the headlines for an intergenerational conversation about the biggest stories out of the Vatican. This week, before we go on break, we're giving you a roundup of this year's Vatican news and the questions that remain going into the new year. I'm Colleen Dully. This is Inside the Vatican. Jerry, good evening from Frankfurt. And good uh, afternoon from sunny Rome. <laughs> we're finally in the same same time zone again. Oh, we're in the same continent. <laughs> yes. Uh, I am here on vacation, but I couldn't let our show go without a host this week. Absolutely. Before Jerry and I get into it, here's a rundown of the stories that we'll cover in our year-end wrap-up. First, we'll start with Gaudete et Exultate, or Rejoice and Be Glad, which is the Pope's document on holiness. Then we'll get into the sexual abuse crisis, which made new waves both in Chile and the U.S. this year. After that, we have the Vatican-China deal, followed by the Synod on Young People. And stay tuned for the end of the show, when Jerry and I each bring a Vatican news story that we wish had gotten more attention this year. So I think maybe we'll start with Gaudete et Exaltate, which was the Pope's document on holiness that came out in April. And I was thinking, looking back at this, you know, kind of at the end of the year, this document didn't make a huge news splash outside of Catholic spheres. But I was wondering if you think that this will be remembered as a major document from the Francis Papacy or not. I think it's a very significant document because what he's telling people in that document is everybody is called to holiness. And holiness isn't just for somebody who goes off to a monastery or a convent or hermitage. It's for the ordinary person on the street. Uh, He's making very clear that each person in their everyday life can become holy, become a saint. You don't have to be like Mother Teresa to go off to Calcutta and pick children off the streets or dying people off the streets. You can do it in your office, wherever you are. And I I think this is a document which really, once it's studied, will help people enormously. All right. Our next story to get into is um, this Summer of Scandal, which is kind of a group of stories. Some have also called it the Summer of Shame. Um, And it really starts back in January on a papal visit that, Jerry, you wanted to talk about, where Pope Francis visited Chile and Peru. And he encountered, you know, some resistance there because of the sexual abuse crisis that was unfolding in Chile. Do you want to just recap what happened there with that visit all the way up through in May, the Chilean bishops resigning? He knew there were problems on the sexual abuse case and that some of the uh, high-profile victims had come out strongly against some of the bishops and the cardinals. And he had appointed one bishop, Bishop Barras, to a diocese, and the victims accused him of being present when they were abused. When he got to Chile and he moved around, he began to see that there was something not quite right. When questioned by a journalist, he came out strongly in defense of this Bishop Barras and said that he was being uh, calumniated by some of the media and some of the victims. This didn't go down well. When he came back to Rome, he reflected on this and he, he realized, I'm seeing only part of the picture. Then he called in the Vatican's former top prosecutor, Archbishop Shikluna, who is now Archbishop in Malta, and said, look, 
I want you to go in, listen to the victims, hear whoever wants to say something, and then report back to me. And they returned to the Pope with 23,000 pages of documentation, and they gave a verbal briefing as well to the Pope and a synthesis of it. And this was what prompted the Pope to then call all of the Chilean bishops, anyone who wasn't retired yet, to Rome, right, for that big meeting? The Pope, first of all, wrote a letter to the people in Chile in which he apologized publicly to the victims and said, I've made a mistake. I got it wrong. I was badly informed. This is amazing that the Pope actually acknowledges that he got it wrong. And it had a tremendous impact in Chile, this acknowledgement. And he asked their forgiveness, and he did two things. He called, summoned all the Chilean bishops to come to Rome. And secondly, he invited the three best-known victims to come and be his guests in the Vatican. He had them come before the bishops. When the bishops came, he had prepared, a, I think, an 11-page document or 12-page, I can't remember exactly, in which really he, he said, basically, you've covered up. You've put yourselves first. Instead of being servant of the people, you've been putting yourselves first more or less like princes. He read the riot act to them in a very diplomatic way, but very powerful. He told the bishops, now you talk among yourselves, you pray. And over three days, he had them reflect and he spoke to them again at the end. And 31 bishops present handed in their resignations to him. And that basically amounted to being all of the bishops that were currently active in Chile, right? Absolutely. The, the bishops who were in charge of diocese. And since then, he has accepted resignations of seven. Right. Do you think he'll accept more? Yes. You know, when you remove a bishop, you've got to put somebody in his place. He wants to check each case, and then uh, he wants to see who can succeed him. Now, Jerry, that is actually a good transition into our next story, which was how the summer of shame kind of played out in the United States, starting with Cardinal McCarrick's resignation from the College of Cardinals back in July, after there was this allegation that he abused a minor and it was found credible. Uh, and then after he resigned, all these additional stories started to come out. And, you know, this this really was the beginning of a very difficult summer in the in the American church because Cardinal McCarrick was seen as this very well-respected figure in, in the U.S. church. Um, but after he resigned, more and more stories came out, and it was kind of revealed that this was an open secret, that he was abusing seminarians and priests in his dioceses. And then we moved into August, and we saw you know, this Pennsylvania grand jury report that came out detailing in kind of gross detail the different torture and abuse that children in the in Pennsylvania faced by clergy. And that was followed by a number of state attorneys general starting to look into dioceses. And now, just recently, we're starting to see um, religious orders and dioceses start to volunteer their records for examination by the state. So the Archdiocese of St. Louis, my home diocese, actually did this. And just last week, the two of the Jesuit provinces also opened up their files. And then uh, right after that, about two weeks after the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report, the first letter from Archbishop Vigano came out. Yes, I, I think, as you say, this was a summer of shame. It was a summer of humiliation 
for the American church. Looked at from the outside, from here in Rome, uh, many saw it as the meltdown, that uh, the American church had taken a stance at Dallas in 2002, and it seemed that they were really coming to grips with the abuse question. With the, first of all, the revelations against then Cardinal McCarrick, the story began to unravel, and uh, the Pennsylvania thing unraveled it more. And uh, I think on the McCarrick thing, I, I think it's worth saying that nobody can take action against a cardinal except by decision of the Pope. So when the first abuse uh, charges came with him, uh, Cardinal Dolan in New York had to get uh, a report to the Pope, and the Pope said, go ahead and investigate. And when the Pope got the information back that indeed these charges were credible, he took action. He removed him from the ministry. And then he took action such as has not happened, never in the question of abuse, of removing him from the College of Cardinals. And the, the Vatican said the Cardinal submitted his resignation. Well, having lived long, long enough in Rome, I, I always read these submission of resignations as really Rome has asked for it. They have never said this publicly, but uh, that's how I read it. Right, right. And that makes sense. There's often a blurry line between, you know, where they ask to submit their resignation, etc. Jerry, the questions that you've mentioned to me are, are still still unanswered from this story is whether Washington will get a new archbishop before the end of the year, because right now they have someone in the interim since uh, Cardinal Worrell stepped down, right? Uh, and also whether the Vatican is going to respond to Archbishop Vigano, which we had expected would happen before Christmas. Do you have any insights on either of those? I know the Vatican has been working a lot on the Vigano response. Right. You've said previously they really want it to be watertight. They want it to be watertight. And there are many different archives. It's not as if they're all in one place. And uh, I mean, other things are happening at the same time. So they have to set aside time to get these documents, speak to people as well, not just documents, find out what people knew. And so they're trying to do this with meticulous care. So do you think there's any chance that we get it before Christmas? I, I don't know. Well, I, I expect it certainly to come before the February meeting. Got it. Now, what about this question about Washington getting a new archbishop? Well, my understanding is that it's likely that the appointment to Washington would come after the publication of the Vatican statement in response to Vigano. Got it. So we're looking at sometime early next year, probably? I don't know if it will happen before Christmas, but I, I would bet my bottom dollar it will be before the February meeting. So our next story that we wanted to recap from this year happened in September, and this was the signing of the Vatican-China deal that brought seven state-ordained bishops into communion with Rome. Jerry, do you think that this deal can hold up with, with China continuing to kind of push the limits here? And China hasn't changed its practice. That's true. They were doing this all along. Uh, the taking away, they call it for a study rest or... A, indoctrination. Really, these are kind of brainwashing sessions or indoctrination sessions. But that hasn't changed. I, I think what has changed is the fact that this agreement gives the Pope an outside figure, a final say 
on who is appointed as a bishop in mainland China. Mm -hmm. And why is that significant? Because, as I said, up to now, the China said no interference in the internal affairs of China. They're giving the, the Pope, the leader of the Catholic Church, a voice in that. And I think that's significant. I think the biggest and most disturbing thing that has happened, and it started last February with the implementation of regulations that anybody under the age of 18 could not receive religious education, could not participate in a religious ceremony, could not go to a camp organized by religious. In other words, they want nobody under the age of 18 to get religious education or any form of participation. Do we think the Vatican will try to push back on this at all? They have already raised the question with China. But as somebody recently explained to me and said, you know, we Chinese, we've spent already more than half a century facing persecution. And we know how to get around even these harshest of regulations. But nevertheless, the regulation is there. So what the Vatican is now trying to do, first of all, is get some way of recognizing the the state, recognizing the underground bishops and their communities without forcing them to be members of the Patriotic Association. The Patriotic Association is the group that bishops in China have to belong to in order to be officially recognized by the government, and the underground bishops refuse to join it. The last story we wanted to cover before we get into our overlooked stories of the year was the Synod on Young People. First, we had the the pre-meeting with the Pope and a bunch of young people in Rome to kind of figure out what the priorities were for the Synod, and then the actual Synod in October. Um, And we covered that on the podcast. But the open question here is that we're still waiting to see if there's going to be a follow-up document from the Pope. There's no confirmation that there will be a final document. And it's interesting, I I don't think they have translated the final document into any language besides Italian, which is kind of curious. What uh, several cardinals I've spoken to and people involved with the Synod said to me that really the message of the Synod was the method. And I mentioned this in an earlier podcast. It's this method of listening, of discerning, and then taking decisions. See, judge, and act, if you wish. Right. And this kind of bringing in the people who are in the the group you're talking about to to really listen to them. I thought that was a big thing, too. And then again, the the role of women, the role of young women and older. I think here, gradually, gradually, there's a growing consciousness, a growing awareness, and now a growing demand to give greater space to lay people, to women especially, also at decision-making levels in the church. And that synod final document spoke about this. That was one case in which the method maybe didn't match the message that ended up coming out of it, right? Because that was the synod in which um, there was some controversy about you know whether or not women would be able to vote, and they ultimately weren't able to for a variety of kind of complicated reasons. But I think that we've seen that in the upcoming the Summit on Sexual Abuse, which we talked about two weeks ago, um, that this is starting to change too, right? Now now the women's religious superiors, who were the ones who were maybe expected to be able to vote by some, are actually going to be invited to participate into, in this meeting. 
Yes, they're in at the same level as their the men's equivalent, and so I think this is important. And I remember uh, Archbishop Shiklune emphasizing how important it was to have religious superiors and both men and women present. We'll keep you up to date on that possible follow-up document from the Pope about the Synod, as well as women's participation in the February meeting. Now, let's get into our overlooked stories of the year. So I brought a story and I asked, asked you to bring a story. What was, what was your overlooked story of the year? Well, I think what's got overlooked is something that happens every month. What's that? On one Friday of each month, the Pope does an act of mercy. He visits... Uh, home for disabled people. This started during the year of mercy, right? It started during the year of mercy, but he's continued the one Friday in every month. And this, uh, you know, it's no longer newsworthy, but it's a very powerful message and it's, it's impacting on the lives of many people. And if bishops and priests around the world started doing the same, then a lot of good things would happen. I'm very, very impressed by the way he suddenly goes to these places and uh, visits and spends time with them. He's not in a rush. Recently, he had in the Vatican these children from Poland who are suffering from leukemia or other forms of cancer. And uh, I think this continual living out the gospel of mercy is. It got a lot of attention during the year of mercy, but I think the focus is still there. Yeah. So that's one of the unreported the things that I believe has got less reported this year. And and the second thing that gets little attention, he's changing the culture in the Vatican. The bishops who come to the Vatican on their five yearly visits have found this. In the past, they would be given their marching instructions. So they went to each office and the office would say, oh, well, you're not doing this well, you should might be doing this, etc. Now, when they come to the offices, they're welcome. They say, we want to hear from you. Tell us about what you're doing. And when they meet the Pope at the end, instead of having him read a spiel, a long text to them, giving them marching orders, he just sits with them, no text, and says, okay, I want to hear what you what questions you have, what problems you have, what you want to ask me. And he sits two, three hours with them. That's changing the culture. And that's, I think, a major, major change that isn't perceived or measurable in the ways that we tend to think about or measure change. Now, I've told my unreported stories. Do you have one or two that you think? Yeah, mine was... um... So this past weekend, uh, the martyrs of, I don't know how to say it, Tiberine. Tiberine, yes, yes. Tiberine. Oh, wow. yes. They were beatified. But back in January, I think it was, when this was announced, actually it was February, I think, when it was announced that they would be beatified, they were made venerable on the same day as another woman, a French woman named Madeleine Delbrel, who I've loved for a long time. Um, and she writes about something that you were talking about earlier, Jerry, I was actually laughing to myself because you used the exact words that are the name of her most popular book, which is uh, We the Ordinary People of the Streets. So she is kind of nicknamed uh, French Dorothy Day, and she uh, lived in this communist village in France and befriended people there and worked to kind of evangelize them. She wrote really prolifically about relations between 
Catholics and communists. And she sort of had the same tone as we see in our colleague James Martin's books about relating to LGBT people in the church, right? She says, you know, you might not agree with them and you might have moral issues with them and such, but but you really have to love them primarily. And and that was what she said about how Catholics should relate to communists. And she also started a house of hospitality, much like Dorothy Day, that she operated in that village of Ivry in France until the day she died at her desk while she was writing. Um, so she she got kind of overshadowed by the the monks who were immortalized in the movie of Gods and Men. But I uh, I would love for Madeline Delbrell to get a little bit more attention. Colleen, I think your story is very beautiful, and I think it it deserves the visibility we will get at the end of our podcast. All right. And I think on that note, we will wrap up. We are going on break from Inside the Vatican for the holidays. So we will be back in the new year with more Vatican news. In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at AmericaMag in order to learn more Vatican news that might break in the coming couple of weeks. Jerry, thanks for thanks for the call and uh, enjoy your holidays. And happy Christmas to you and to our listeners. Yeah, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Thank you. Before we go, if you're enjoying the podcast so far, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate your help getting the word out about the show. Inside the Vatican, it's produced by me, Colleen Dully. Our executive producer is Eric Sundrup. Our news producer is Kevin Clark. Our audio engineer is Karen Freeman. Inside the Vatican is mixed by Oliver Lazarus. Our studio manager is Leopold Stubner. You can find in-depth and up-to-date Vatican coverage at americamagazine.org or follow us on Twitter at americamag. For America Media, I'm Colleen Dully with Gerard O'Connell. We'll see you next year.